while it was crazy and it caused lots of stress, I said, you know what? I wouldn't mind giving that a go if I had an opportunity to do it. So. I'm today's special guest host, Isaac Arcos Ricochea, and this is Commit Your Code, a show about software development, technology, and the developers that use it. Your host is Danny Thompson. Today, we have a creative coder and a Salesforce developer talking about utility frameworks. Later on, we'll be joined by David Kia, someone who went from being homeless to landing their first job in tech. What's going on, everybody? This is Commit Your Code. I am Danny Thompson, and today I am joined with Braden Coyer and Isaac Thank you both so much for being a part of this. I'm so happy to have y'all. Um, maybe we can start this off with introduction. So, Braden, why don't you introduce yourself so um, people can know more about you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Braden Coyer. I'm a husband and a father and also a senior front-end developer. Uh, I work at a company right now called Logigate. They're dealing in the GRC space, uh, and I work remotely here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, which is pretty great. I get to be here. Uh, I get to see my, my daughter. We're about to have another one. Uh, so another two weeks here, it's going to be great. Um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you. Super excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, Isaac, why don't we go through introductions with you? Hey, thank you for having me, Danny. My name is Isaac Arcos. I am a Salesforce business analyst with Silverline CRM. And it's funny, business analyst seems to be a uh, jack of all trades, master of none title. I do development. I do administrative work. I do a little bit of everything in the Salesforce ecosystem. Uh, my job is to help businesses optimize their organizations, help them find better ways of doing the business that they already do, and helping them clear up tech debt, establish best practices, get their pipeline in order. It's an amazing job. You have to wear a lot of hats and definitely always be on the run, but it's always a blast. And I'm usually found contributing on LinkedIn, Reddit, and across social media to help various channels um, and beginners get, their, get started in Salesforce. Thanks for being a part of this and agreeing to be my special guest host today. Uh, I guess we can just kind of dive in, Braden. And, you know, today we're talking about Tailwind CSS. So why don't you give us like a brief introduction to what Tailwind CSS is and how people utilize it? So, yeah, I'm super excited about this topic. I'm a huge Tailwind CSS uh, user and evangelist. Uh, Tailwind CSS is a utility-first CSS framework, and it really streamlines the, the web development process by providing a bunch of different uh, pre-designed CSS class names that allow developers to create responsive, customizable, and consistent user interfaces without writing any CSS from, from scratch. So you mentioned how like it has class names and people often draw a parallel between Tailwind CSS and Bootstrap. Like, I guess in the simplest way, how do you correlate how they are maybe similar or different or completely polar opposites of each other? I don't know what your stance is on this. Why don't you go into that? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, you know, there's always a, a, a right tool for the right uh, project you're working on. Sometimes Bootstrap's going to be the right solution for you, depending on a bunch of different scenarios. Sometimes Tailwind, maybe. It could be another CSS framework like Bulma or something like that. Um, Bootstrap is kind of interesting because it really aims to accelerate your styling by providing class names that encapsulate a bunch of uh, opinionated styles for certain elements. So for example, you can apply a button class to a button, and it's going to apply a bunch of different properties through that class name to an element. And a lot of the times, uh, bootstrap applications look very similar. But that's the point, because their, their goal is to just make it super easy for you to go from zero to published, right? Uh, Tailwind 
gives you CSS utility classes, which allow you to essentially customize your application however you want without having to actually go to your CSS file and actually write that CSS. There's a bunch of different customizations, but again, it really comes down to what you want to do and what's right for your project. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I've often told people, I'm a big fan of Tailwind CSS and I utilize this regularly. And I've often mentioned that you can almost tell when a project is utilizing Bootstrap. There's no real true customization of what it is that you're doing. Whereas Tailwind CSS, it has some components that you could utilize if you wanted to. But the reality is it's just streamlining your entire CSS process. Um, and it comes with like a bunch of different tools that you can kind of tap into. Um, big fan of it. Yeah, so <clears throat> I've heard a bit about Tailwind CSS. I do have a question. Can you explain how the at apply uh, directive in Tailwind CSS works and how it can be used to create responsive layouts to adapt to different screen sizes? Yeah, that's a great question. So the at apply directive is useful when you see, um, for example, a bunch of reused utility classes, like if you see a pattern. So for example, let's say you have a button and all buttons in your application kind of share this, these base styles, You know, whether it be padding, um, a minimum width, things like that. If you start to notice a pattern like that, you can actually use and extract those utility classes into a new single CSS class name using the at apply directive. So we could take, we could take minimum width, we could take padding and margin and text color extract those into its own CSS class name, and then just replace all of those in your markup with that new CSS class name. So it's really useful for decluttering your template if you want to. But again, it's completely customizable. You don't have to do that, but it's one of the flexible things about Tailwind. Love that. And so now it kind of brings me to another question. Like we're talking about CSS and one of the biggest necessities in web development has always been accessibility. And we're finding a bigger push now more than ever for websites to be not just responsive, not just a, a great experience for the customers, but extremely accessible. So how does Tailwind CSS fall into this? Um, accessibility is a must-have for websites now. How does Tailwind CSS handle that? Yeah, that's also a really great question. And I'm glad you brought it up because I feel like as front-end developers, it's our responsibility to make sure that whatever we create is accessible for all users. And um, when it comes to accessibility and CSS in general, not just necessarily Tailwind, I think it can be like largely narrowed down to a few silos. It can be like targeting screen readers. We have to do that a lot, right? It could be visual effects like hover and focus and other visual states, and then breakpoints to handle various screen sizes. And CSS is one component of that, but then you also have semantic markup and making sure you're uh, aligning to guidelines and, and things like that. So with Tailwind, you get to support all of those in combination with like proper semantic markup. With Tailwind, you can make sure your website and application is accessible for everyone. Um, they even just recently released uh, a new little feature where you can style things based on the ARIA attributes in Tailwind, which is pretty great and a great addition. So that's interesting. With all of those requirements floating around, I'm curious as to how it interconnects with existing environments. Like, can you discuss how Tailwind CSS would integrate with server-side rendering frameworks like Next.js and what some of the best practices would be for using the framework in those environments? Yeah, for sure. I'm a huge uh, evangelist of Next.js as well. It's really my go-to uh, React framework. Uh, and the cool thing about Next is that since you know they're kind of moving towards uh, server-side components, and yeah, you can have some client components in there as well, 
but Tailwind's is completely separate, which means that there's no extra configuration that you're going to have to do in order to get it up and running with Next.js. Uh, so that's one less thing you really have to worry about, and you can just focus on your project. So, Raiden, just to kind of build up on along that track, what are your thoughts on using Tailwind CSS to build your design systems? Do you feel like there are advantages and drawbacks by doing this, and what would some of those examples be? Yeah, that's a great question. I think design systems are super important nowadays, and it's really awesome that Tailwind was kind of built upon a design system in mind, right, from the from the get-go. Um, so there are some pros and some cons, like you mentioned. I'll mention one of them. Uh, uh, pros, consistency. You know, a design system provides a set of guidelines and rules for developers to use and follow. And ensuring that you have that consistency across the application is just going to speed up your development even more. Um, I found this really helpful and pretty much mandatory on larger teams, right? The more people you have, you want to remove any um, obstacle as you can. Uh, and so consistency is a big one. Efficiency is another one. Tailwind's already super efficient uh, as far as like the bundle size, but it also makes you efficient as a developer, right? Um, but a design system in itself um, means that you can streamline that development process for your developers by providing those built-in utility classes that align to uh, what your designers have set out. Uh, accessibility is another one I think that probably comes to mind, and I know we touched on it a little bit earlier, but design systems can incorporate accessibility guidelines, whether those be you know, font sizes, color, weight, things like that. So they're all, those are all things that you can do inside of your Tailwind config file, which makes it really easy when you're in your markup, you're building your app to just use those. Um, there are some cons though. There are times when, well, let me restart that. There are cons, some of them being uh, upfront investment. So a design system takes time to build and flesh out, right? Uh, but hopefully you have a designer that handles all that for you. But you know what? Once it's ready, it's really easy to translate over into your, your design system in Tailwind and your Tailwind config. You get to create custom colors, fonts, and, and everything like that, everything you would need. Um, but even though it takes upfront investment, you know, if you compare that to the cost of not having a design system and you have developers that either constantly have to go to their designers and ask for specific colors or don't know which headings to use, uh, you know, I think you can really see the advantage of, of investing that time up front. Maintenance, let me restart that one. Maintenance is another good one. Um, something you have to consider with design systems where um, just like any piece of software, a design system is gonna require updates over time. So keep that in mind, um, but again, you know, you have to weigh these pros and cons. I think it's well worth it uh, if you do these things right uh, from the get-go. So as a follow-up to that, just based off of what you were saying, um, how is the readability? I understand that this can actually add some heft to your markup files, but let's say that you were to leave a project for six months for whatever reason. When you come back to that, are they still fairly readable or it, does it become a jumbled mess of, and I don't know if you've had this happen to you where you go, who wrote this? And then five minutes into it, it's like, oh, wait, this was me. Yeah, that's a good call out. I think that, you know, if you're following CSS naming conventions, uh, you kind of already have a head start on, on keeping things maintained. But even then, you know, I'll, I'll hop into a file that I worked in six months ago. We're using uh, block element modifier, for example, as our naming convention, and I have a hard time remembering, okay, this specific class name, what exactly does it do? How is it affecting this element? And how is it used throughout our whole application? Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but one of the beauty 
one of the one of the things that makes Tailwind beautiful is that you get to see each utility class in your markup. So it's as easy as just reading your your markup on the file to understand what's going on, which means you can come back six months from now, a year, and understand what's happening. Now there are some some downsides to that. You're going to have a lot of class names in your template. Um, a lot of people prefer to have it as trim as possible. And so there's a few things that you can do. We mentioned the at apply directive already. That's a great way to uh, minimize duplicated utility classes. Another one is, you know what, just extracting things into their own reusable components. So you can encapsulate those utility classes into their own uh, into their own files. And that way you can, you know, build out your system as you go and make it easier to read. Yes. Like this is one thing that gets me. And I'm so glad that you mentioned this because I constantly talk about me personally, when it comes to Tailwind CSS, I feel like it's more readable because I understand the syntax. Whereas one of the biggest um, comments people make is, oh, it makes my HTML a mess. I can't read what's happening. But I think once you understand the syntax, it's like that. You've, you completely understand what's happening at that point. And so for me, my biggest factor is I want to know what's happening to that specific element right away without going to a separate file, or maybe it's getting some style from some random area here that I haven't figured out yet. But with Tailwind CSS, I immediately know what it's touching. So big call out there for sure. So I guess, let me ask you this, like what are some of the best practices that you think people can be doing when it comes to Tailwind? Yeah, I was actually about to touch on that because I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head there where a lot of individuals will see Tailwind and they'll see all these CSS classes applied. So for example, they might go to a website built with Tailwind they open up the developer tools, they're like, holy moly, look at all these class names. But in reality, as a developer, those might be encapsulated inside of their own components. It might be using the at apply directive. So as a developer, you may not be bombarded with all of that, right? Um, but part of that is if you see a project that does have all those class names just littered everywhere, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but there are some best practices you can follow to reduce that, right? So some of those, making sure your design system is up to date. Uh, inside of your Tailwind config, you can target and style specific elements inside of that config so that way you don't have to worry about that in your markup. So things like code blocks and headings and things like that, you can actually target those inside of your, your Tailwind config. You don't have to do that in the in the template. Uh, the at apply, we've talked about it. Figure out those repetitive uh, base classes, extract them, you're good to go. Uh, and then components are a big one. I'm a big fan of composable components. So that way you can, you know, make things slim if you need to and make it evolve over time. Uh, I think those are really three big best practices that you can follow if you're, if you're noticing, hey, I see a lot of markup. I see a lot of class names. What can I do? Try looking into those first. So, Braden, you seem to be on the cutting edge of Tailwind CSS and you're keeping up with the releases. What can we expect for Tailwind CSS to come out with in the near future? Oh man, I wish I had all the the secrets, right? Um, I do know that that Tailwind, at the time of this recording, at least they're planning their first uh, in-person event where I think they're going to show off some cool new things happening. I don't know what any of that is, so I can't really speak to what's coming in the future, but just recently, maybe I can hit on a few things that listeners or viewers may not know about yet, and they can go check it out on the doc site or find YouTube videos. Uh, so number one, container queries. These are also new to CSS as well. Container queries are awesome. If you know what they are, they're like a new feature in web development that allows developers to apply styles based upon um, the characteristics of a container element, like a parent element, rather than just looking at the window of your browser itself. So as you can imagine, like, bam, so many new possibilities. Go look it up. There's some great stuff on container queries with Tailwind, so check out their doc site. 
Um, Tailwind also has a uh, a prose like uh, typography plugin, and they just released a few months ago their uh, their dark mode support. So it makes it really easy to just slap on literally one utility class to a block of text, and it gets formatted really nicely. And now supports dark mode, so big win right there. Um, new color palette just dropped too. So whenever I'm designing something, I go to the Tailwind website. Doesn't matter what it is, if I'm using Tailwind or not, they have a great color palette, and I just pick and choose from there. They just added new darker shades for every uh, spectrum there. So those are those are really fun. And if you like to geek out like me, maybe go go check them out on the the website. That was awesome, uh, Braden. Thank you so much for being a part of this and educating folks on Tailwind CSS. Hopefully they'll go out there and write some more code. But uh, I guess you know any final thoughts, comments, or anything you want to plug at the end of this. Oh man, yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. I had a blast. I love talking about Tailwind. I hope the listeners, uh, you get to to maybe uh, explore Tailwind. Go check out their doc site. If it's the right tool for you, awesome. Have fun. If it's not, that's okay. Maybe come back a little bit later. Uh, but I was super excited to be on here. Thanks so much, Danny. Thanks so much, Isaac. Um, I do maintain and run my own blog and website, so you can find me at bradencoyer.dev. I have a community wall there, so if you want, you can go log in and leave me a little message. Let me know that you're coming from the podcast, and that would be really cool. Awesome. Braden, thank you. And now we got David. David, thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you for you know giving us time. I really wanted to kind of highlight you some of the things that you've been doing, and I thought, you know, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for people that want to know more about you? Okay, awesome. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Isaac. Uh, my name is David Kia. I'm originally from uh, Detroit, Michigan. I attended the best high school in America, Castec High School, and I actually uh, majored, yes, majored in computer programming while I was in high school. A little known fact is that I actually went to college for uh, computer science prior to uh, joining the military. So uh, I feel like it's almost like a coming home of sorts. Having been out of that field for so long, I find myself uh, back in a place that I'm just a little bit we familiar with now. So, you know, number one, thank you for your service. De genuinely appreciate it. And so, I guess kind of going into the lead here before we get to the more technical questions, your story is that you went from homeless to be getting your first job in tech. Like, why don't you run us through that? How do you change your circumstances? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, I found myself without a job in April of 2018. And it was at that point where I was trying to figure out how to uh, continue paying bills and how to do that the legal way. <laughs> so, uh, exercising options and uh, I, I applied for many jobs, tried my best to speak with people and connect. And so uh, when those those opportunities didn't open themselves up, I ended up starting out as an Uber driver. My, my path of Uber of driving like that led me to uh, this area, to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And when I initially got here, I had no friends, no family, anything like that. So I found myself sleeping in the uh, in my car at uh, the Lost Cleanest Walmart. And I would just wake up in the mornings, usually about three in the morning, and just pick up passengers, uh, continue to drive, hoping that they wouldn't smell me whatsoever. <laughs> and I ended up joining like a, a planet fitness so that I could wash up. So that was just kind of how I just washed up and the money that I eventually made while I was Uber driving, then I would get into like a motel six because I needed some Wi-Fi. And so I ended up living in a motel six 
and pretty much back and forth between that and the Walmart parking lot and various Airbnbs in this area. So how'd you change it? What what was the catalyst that shifted everything for you in the direction you needed it? I ended up joining a meetup group, an IT meetup group. And it was at that point that I found out about a free IT training school in downtown Dallas called Perscolas. I ended up filling out the application for it, doing an interview, and I just barely missed the software engineering cohort. And so it was at that point that I joined the IT support technician uh, cohort. So after joining that cohort, after about three to four months of training, then it was at that point that I was still looking for a job even after taking IT training, but I did have the skills in order to get a job. So it was a few months later where I actually received my first job as an IT support tech from uh, Workforce Opportunity Solutions. So then how did that turn into you becoming a software developer? So my connections with Perscolas allowed me to have a, a vast network of companies that they partnered up with, uh, such as uh, Southwest, AT&T, Citibank, Alchemy, Tech Mahindra, companies of that ilk for, for us people that were starting out in tech uh, as newbies, I would say. And so they had an opportunity for a voucher um, to attend Udacity for intro to programming. It was at that point that I made a decision to say, okay, let me try this out and, and see what it's about. So my introduction to programming was actually HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and Python through that program. It lasted all of six months and it was challenging. It was like learning a new language. However, when it was all said and done, while it was crazy and it caused lots of stress, I said, you know what? I wouldn't mind giving that a go if I had an opportunity to do it. So that's where my introduction to uh, getting back into it was through that program, earning a nano degree. I got to give it up to you. That's absolutely incredible. Um, massive congratulations on changing your circumstances and like truly excelling at this field. So I guess, you know, getting down to the more technical items, I really want to know more about what was the first, I don't know what's going on here moment for you. Like, I love asking people that. What was the first, I don't have a clue what's going on here when you first started your first job as a software developer? The first job, well, happened to be my internship. And we get there, we have zero experience. But that's okay. They understand that, right? However, the client doesn't. So I'm in a meeting with the senior VP. And at this point, your intern, yeah, I want to, you know, you want to do well and all that stuff. So he said, David, in his accent, I want you to learn Java, Maven, Spring Boot. Cloudbeast Jenkins and some other stuff at the time in two weeks. Now, anyone that knows better <laughs> knows what that means. <laughs> at the two time, weeks? Ain't no way. <laughs> right. Wow. So you get there 
And I'm like, yeah, I can do it. No problem. And I remember getting off the call and it was at that point I said, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> it was so crazy. And here I am having never touched Java before, never touched Java, not even understand what I'm getting myself into. That as I started to dive into it, asking uh, the manager at the time, hey, what are some good things for me to do? He gave me a nice little course that was a Java 8 intermediate course. My first ever course. Oh, my goodness. Lambdas and streams. My goodness. What is this? I mean, yeah, that's an arrow, but what is it doing? <laughs> so that was my introduction. And it was just like, this is what you got yourself into. So. Yeah, that was crazy. Oh, my goodness. It was stressful, too. I wouldn't wish down my worst enemies. So, <laughs> Java and spring in two weeks. You might as well ask me to scale Everest in a week. Um, <laughs> so let me ask you this, David. Java, Mavis, what other new technologies or tools were you introduced upon landing in this new role that maybe you hadn't traditionally looked at? Oh, that's that's a good one. So at that time, um, Java was the main one in the spring boot. And then obviously the Maven build um, at that time during the internship. Um, it lasted literally about two months. And after about those two months, because they had it, the holiday season was coming up and they were switching over to a different project. At that point, I'm landed on the bench as an intern. So the best thing I could do at that point was just try to learn Java because two weeks just, we know two weeks just doesn't cut it. And unfortunately I wasn't hired for that, that particular uh, job and neither were any of the other interns that joined me as well. So it wasn't until I was hired at my current full-time job uh, with tech systems where now I have a stack that I can focus on. So my current stack um, involves learning Angular. I'm learning some Python. And the back end will be similar to basically Java, Spring Boot. We're working on SQL, maybe MongoDB. Um, that's going to depend on how the project planning goals and then also in the front end we're working with apache kafka as far as the technology goes for messaging back and forth so that's the current technology that i'll be working with on the job um, for the foreseeable future so let me ask you this one question you said that you worked through a couple of boot camps you worked through a nano degree with udacity if you could go back into your curriculum and insert one technology that you feel on the job has popped up where you're like, oh, I had never worked with this before, and you feel like exposure to it earlier would have helped you more, which would it be? If I had to pick one that really stands out to me um, starting over or just giving advice to someone, I would start off with the front end stuff 
And the reason why is because of the visuality, right? You can be able to see what you're doing. I think for me, starting out on Java, learning the logical part, for someone that hadn't been in that mindset for a while, like it becomes a challenge to just even think about creating methods and loops and, and really dealing with that business logic on the back end. So if I had to begin over the front end it would be like a major focus just because you can see as you're editing you, the changes that you make. And to me, you can see things incomplete then complete it. And I think it boosts your confidence that much more seeing that completion. I can't agree with you more because it's funny. I often say this anytime I get a beginner that comes to me and asks, you know, what should I learn? Number one, I think your market really factors into, you know, what's in demand, but I often always recommend HTML, CSS and JavaScript. And it's not because I think front end is where all the jobs are, or I think it's necessary, but when someone hasn't had an experience with programming before and they don't come from a technical background, it's extremely hard to get them to say, yeah, I want to do mobile development. They don't know what mobile development is. Oh, I want to work on backend. They don't know what backend development is. But if you at least send them to HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, at least from an educated standpoint, they could say, you know what? I really like working on these buttons. But I think the other thing is those early visual wins because mm -hmm. it's exciting. Ooh, you made a background red for the first time. Or, oh, I made this icon over here and it's got a cat inside it. Like, those keep you kind of hooked on the process because the reality is learning to code is hard, especially the length of time that you have to be consistent with it. And when you don't come from a technical background, you kind of need those early wins to keep you kind of hooked to the process. So I'm with you on that agreement that I think it's great because think about it. Maybe you realize I really hate making buttons. Nothing wrong with that. Hmm. What you end up doing now, what? I'm not going to make buttons no more, but I really like this analytical thinking side of things. And I want to start now solving more problems. Well, now, you know, from an educated standpoint, you can migrate to the back end or you could be like, you know what? I really hate that, too. Hey, maybe, you know what? Coding's not your bag. That's not a problem. There's tons of jobs in tech. Go be a graphic designer. If you have an eye for design or even be a project manager or product. Owner. There's so many areas that you can kind of be in besides just writing code. And once you at least have the knowledge necessary to make those determinations, decisions, you can kind of go somewhere with it. So I love that. So let me ask you this then. Yes. Uh, we're, we've talked now about all the new technologies that you got introduced to, the things that you kind of got thrown into um, and how you survived those situations. I guess my question now is, and you know, with you seeing at least more than one of these, how did you even get familiar or comfortable with your code base? That's a good one, right? So here on the job, what we when we were assigned an opportunity to work with one of the teams, the the immediate thing was, hey, what what language are we working with? And so when it was Python, then we were able to get our Bitbucket accounts going, get because when you're working with a financial institution, it's just a lot of checks and balances that just have to happen. So you kind of have to just wait until you're able to be clear to even touch certain things in the first place. So once we're able to download that specific code base, what I like to do, as well as a few of my coworkers, we do the same thing. You just go over it. You download onto your, your local device and you, you just walk through the code. 
Uh, there's so many limitations that we have right now for what we can and can't see. However, that visual look of just getting an idea of what's happening, because you can cross reference those things with what you see in the meetings. So now you say, okay, they're working on this in a meeting. Where is that located here in the code base to where we can kind of logically walk through? And what I like to do is compare it to, for instance, if I'm looking at something in Python, I try to mirror it to whatever I know familiar in Java. So then I can say, okay, this is that one thing is doing this. So how would that work in Java? And when I make that comparison, then things become a lot clearer for me. So I would recommend anyone that is doing any type of code base review or anything like that. If it's something that you're reading and you're kind of fuzzy about, just make sure that whatever language that you're comfortable with, if you're learning something different, just try to compare the two and see what the similarities are. And usually you can find some similarities in a lot of the object oriented programming and, and things of that nature. And you can kind of pick up things pretty quickly. Love it. Uh, David, can you talk about a particular problem you've solved in the past and how you went about approaching it, um, kind of dissecting it and at arriving to a resolution? Uh, yes, I will actually um, talk about a, a problem that I resolved during my training. And one of my techniques that I probably would not advise for those that are fearful is deleting everything and starting over from scratch. <laughs> oh, you bold. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I agree it's so with that. funny. I got really used to it because I was the only one using IntelliJ. So the instructors told me, he said, look, we're all using Eclipse. I'm glad you're using IntelliJ, but if there are any issues that come up, you need to learn how to resolve it. <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> no problem, buddy. I'm just using IntelliJ because I like the colors. So what I would do is typically I would, I uh, found an issue. We were working on connecting the database uh, from Java to MySQL. And so I was getting a 404 error, which, you know, you get that error trying to make sure you get an HTTP request for whatever you're trying to run when you're doing a query. And so when I encountered the issue, the great thing I loved about my instructor, I love him to death. He was 20 years in and he really taught us how to look at the error code that would pop up in the terminal in IntelliJ. And he would basically say, hey, ignore all the fluff and just look at this certain section and this is where your errors are. And, and really reducing that time because for me and a lot of people that start out new, I can imagine when you see this big line of, oh, your code is wrong and it pops up in the bottom and you have no idea what all of this stuff is and now you're freaking out. So that really helped me to really just comb through errors really fast. So I immediately went to Stack Overflow and I love all of the developers at Stack Overflow, especially the ones that post things seven years ago. However, sometimes it just doesn't work. <laughs> so uh, what happened was that I found an alternative solution within Stack Overflow and it produced the result that I was looking for. 
However, it was not the right way to do it. And so I'm wrecking my brain. It's probably like two in the morning and I'm just like, oh my goodness, like this seems like everything that I've written and what is going on? So I, I really tried a lot. And so the funny thing is I actually had the right solution. I actually had the right solution before, but because of my lack of expertise at the time, I totally went with the stack overflow. I said, oh yeah, these guys got to know it. Yeah, I'm going to use this. Went back to my teacher and said, hey, I had this problem. I fixed it, but it's producing this result that is not the kind of result we're looking for. So he looked at it and he said, well, why did you change? Why did you change the code to a string instead of just looking for the bean object? And I said, well, I found on Stack Overflow. It had to be right. <laughs> he was like, no, 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 no. He said, I was like, well, I had it like this before. He said, that's that was the right answer. So I've learned to just trust what I'm doing, the process. And after that, it became a lot easier for me to fix errors. But that was definitely one of the ones that I actually initially had it right. Then I changed it, it was wrong. And then I got it right going forward and stuff. So that was one of the stories of my troubleshooting and just building that confidence of just really relying on what you've been taught and applying it. You know, it reminds me of a situation literally today. Um, I've been working on a ticket for three and a half days. Uh, I was going down a path that our team lead wanted us to go down. And I basically had, like, we're talking about huge code changes. Uh, all of our integration tests weren't working because uh, in one of the checkout flows, some of the things weren't rendering correctly, et cetera, et cetera. And I was looking for certain data. So we had to like re-architect this whole page and components uh, structure. And I went through all that um, massive changes. We had an extra dev helping out with like local testing before we sent it to QA to make sure like we thought of the edge cases. And after jumping on a call with uh, another person and my team lead, I said, why don't we try and mock some of this stuff um, so that way we have more values here uh, instead of restructuring because we're still coming up with errors and we're finding weird edge cases of something not working. Uh, after several days, five lines of code fixed everything. And so we, four of us sat on this call in silence for like a good 30 seconds. And it was painful, but you know what? It happens and you just kind of learn from it. You, I mean, we all learn something today. And so then, you know, you just internalize the saying, hey, maybe this approach would work in the future as well. Something that you could check off before trying to restructure an entire page. But, you know, I think it, it was worth it at the end of the day. So um, learned a lot in the process and my team lead definitely learned a lot too. So it's always good stuff. But um, I guess I, it brings me to one question. I'm like, we've talked about um, problems that you've worked on. We've talked about different technologies. But it makes me think about something like, what are some of the process, like, or let me ask this, what processes did you find different in tech that you may not have known about when you were like in different fields? What are certain things that are done in tech that may not have been done in previous positions that you had? Oh my goodness. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> tech is just, it's, it's different, it's unique. The, the approach 
you, you can bring some approaches, right? You can bring some, um, for, for crying out loud, I worked on nuclear missiles. So you can bring some uh, approaches to there, but it's just different when you're, depending on what language you're working on, right? If you're working on HTML, you, you pretty much have a format. And then you're working on CSS, it has the little format. But then you change when you get to something where you have to think about logic, like Java. I think just having the ability to be open to the possibilities of something being done multiple ways, but providing the same results. And then as you learn a little bit more then when you're working for a business, everything's becomes about efficiency. And now you have to learn a little bit different way of how to code the same problem and think about it just a little bit different because now instead of just building a small little project and maybe having a hundred items, 200 items, little cute stuff, now you're dealing with maybe thousands or millions of customers, right? So I think with tech, it just allows for a freedom of thought, but it also allows a person to develop some really good problem solving skills that you don't find elsewhere. And the, the issues and the situations you face, as you just talked about, make it so unique because these are things that you that you typically won't see anywhere else. You just be like, "Oh, okay, well what do you do?" Unless you're in the field, it's kind of hard to explain. <laughs> but once you're there and you start talking like you're doing and you know that time you put in, it could just be something that's right there, but you really have to shift through. So that to me is the difference with code where it could be something where it's liberating and you find it in seconds or it could be agonizing and it's three, five days, maybe a week, maybe two. And the next thing you know, you're like, what? It was just this. And that's that's the thing. It's just tech to me is just a lots of peaks and valleys, peaks and valley. Emotions go high, low, high, low. It's unlike anything um, that I've experienced. And to me, I think you have to be a little crazy to love it. <laughs> Honestly, could not agree with you more. It's um, it's kind of like, I can't remember what the name of the syndrome is off the top of my head, where you start sympathizing with your captors. That's pretty much what learning to code is. At first, it's like, I don't want to be here. Then it's like, well, no, hang on. I'm kind of into it. Let's see where it goes. <laughs> All right. All right, David. I got one more question for you. So what do you know now that you wish you knew before accepting your first job in tech? Time and patience. Time and patience. Don't rush the process. Trust the process, but don't rush it. People that desire to be developers, they put undue pressure on themselves to be this uber developer, they have to touch every language, they have to know everything, they have to be on point, they can't mess up, they have to be almost near perfect. And they put that undue pressure on themselves about a position or job that they don't even have. So 
and understanding that a little bit more, I would say to myself, hey, this is a journey. It's going to take time. Just make sure you, you make the moments count where they count. Definitely enjoy life and, you know, and learn in the process. But time and patience, because things will come to you. They, they, they do. But I find myself actually taking walks in this at that time when I'm taking walks and I step away from something that I really can think things out and talk to myself like I'm talking to someone and say, okay, what are we talking about? What are we thinking of doing? And is it those moments where some things really click and then I come back and I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, I remember that now. It's, so just definitely have time and patience with yourself. And those things will, they'll, they'll, those good things will happen to you. Just, just trust that process. David Kia, you absolutely made it. You did this thing. Um, any closing remarks or final words? Uh, I just want to thank uh, Danny and Isaac for uh, having me. I appreciate anyone else that's listening to this. Like Danny's always said, hey, it's, it's a process. Trust the process. Put in the work. Stay on the journey. If it's something that you really want, you, you'll be thoroughly rewarded as long as you stick with it and stay true to it. Yeah, Isaac, uh, any final words or comments? Honestly, uh, David, your story is inspirational. Thank you for your service. I meant to say that earlier. I just couldn't get the mute button fast enough, and Danny beat me to the draw on that. <laughs> and honestly, I look forward to speaking with you more and just following you on your journey, man. It's going to be a wild ride, and I hope to be there with you every step of the way. I appreciate it. Thank you, Isaac. Y'all, this was Commit Your Code. I had a blast. I hope you got some key tips to walk away with and some information that you could utilize. And I will see you on the next one. Goodbye, everybody.